Welcome to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Mariah, and this is a podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infield Development and Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. On today's episode, we have Katie Warwa, who Mariah and I uh, first got to know through the Builder Education Program, but she's much more than that. She's um, an owner slash partner and the lead of design at Urbis Infill Homes. You might have heard of, heard of them. They're a design build company focused on uh, primarily infill in Edmonton's mature neighborhoods, which we talk about a lot. She has a background in architecture. She has a master's degree from UBC, um, but her role at Urbis is uh, way broader than simply design. Um, she's been with the company since its infancy when it was just a small operation of about four people. Um, and she wears many hats. She deals with clients, does marketing, um, leads the design team, and oversees some of the construction. So she's a, a huge key to the company, um, the company culture, managing all the teams. She has a lot of responsibility there, and we could not be happier to have her on today. There's only one thing I think we need to define. It's a project that I think she worked on uh, when she was at a previous role at an architectural company out of Vancouver. It's Oak Ridge Park Mall. It's a mall redevelopment in central Vancouver. So uh, a 28-acre site, it's in the geographic center of Vancouver, and it takes a 1950s suburban mall with sprawling parking. You know exactly what I'm talking about here and uh, put a plan together to transform it into a cultural and civic hub. So um, it's got a mix of residential, retail, office, parks, civic, and cultural elements. So that includes 3,300 new homes, 420 uh, of which are affordable, um, 5,300 full-time jobs are going to be introduced through the new offices and services that are there. 103,000 square foot civic center, community center, and library, which is the second largest in Vancouver, I believe. Um, daycares, performance, cultural spaces, tons of retail space. It's a really cool redevelopment. Um, if you want to check it out, look at the Henriquez Partners website. It's featured on their uh, projects page. I don't think there's anything else to define. I'm really excited about this uh, episode, so we're going to let uh, you get right into listening to it. So we have an amazing guest on today's episode. I can't believe we got her. Yes, she is on the board of IDEA, but still she is incredibly busy. Uh, her name is Katie Wara, and she is unbelievably fascinating in so many ways. Uh, but I'm going to dig into her background and education first. But thanks so much for coming on the episode today, Katie. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here with you guys. So you have a background in communications and a master's in architecture. What made you switch to go to architecture after communications? Yeah, so um, my family, my dad, actually, he is a registered architect, owned a large architectural practice in Edmonton, um, practiced, he's, I think he's like, it's been over 40 years now. Um, and yeah, through school, when I was at U of A um, in the visual communication design program, I sort of worked in-house for his firm intermittently, sort of summer jobs um, and for a few years after school and just sort of realized, um, you know, working in that firm and being surrounded by architecture that that was something I was interested in and decided to just on a whim apply for, uh, 
for graduate school, um, applied to a few different schools, UFC, UBC, and U of M, just wanted to stay sort of in Western Canada. And yeah, I was accepted and moved to Vancouver and yeah, never looked back. So so I've heard amazing things about the UBC program. Uh, I believe that's where you went for your master's degree. Is it true? Is it great? Did you love it? <laughs> I mean, Vancouver is a pretty spectacular city. So um, starting studying architecture in that context, uh, definitely, you know, it's inspiring. And um, there's a lot of very talented uh, firms out there and um, international architects that, that design and build in that city. So, yeah, it's definitely a fascinating place to be educated in the architectural industry um, and the school itself. Yeah, I have great things to say about it. It's definitely um, versatile in that there is, you know, a focus on planning. Urban planning is 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 a large focus of the the curriculum there. Um, and another really interesting thing about it um, is that they tend to accept uh, a sort of a wide breadth of of students from different backgrounds. Um, typically, not architecture. The program's not really set up for that. Um, so the students that take, go through that program tend to be from all different types of backgrounds. And um, so it makes for a really interesting experience. You know, you get to meet people from neuroscience backgrounds to people from music backgrounds to, you know, a lot of people though um, come from actually U the U of A's industrial design program. There's, I think a lot of Edmontonians um, in that program. So um, yeah, there was a little niche of people I knew from Edmonton either sort of in my my year before and after um so yeah it, it was I loved it there it was a great experience I think um you know Vancouver has amazing urban planning and um it sort of makes sense that the architecture program would would uh, have a lot of to say about that so um yeah no I really liked it there I had a great great experience and and worked for a few years in Vancouver so got to experience kind of what it was like to be working for a large architectural practice there and designing high rises and multi all sorts of crazy multifamily things. So yeah, I, I really liked my time in Vancouver. I got to ask, did you get accepted to all three of those schools and then you picked the one in Vancouver or? I got accepted to two of three and then picked Vancouver, yeah. <laughs> Tell me the other one was Winnipeg. Was it a hard choice? No, it was U of C. But I, you know what? I actually think University of Manitoba has a really good architecture program. So, um, you know, I, I would have considered that, I think, if, if I was accepted there. But I mean, <laughs> it was it was an easy yes to Vancouver, for sure. Um, getting an opportunity to move there was was great. So, yeah, for sure. I see on your uh, your bio on the Urbis Infill website, it says that uh, the Pacific Northwest is your favorite place to travel. I got to ask where <laughs> where in the Pacific Northwest. It's a big region. I mean, living in Vancouver, you're so close to the border. You can go camp in Washington State. Um, there's amazing state parks in Washington. So we spent a lot of time there. Um, Portland's just a, a day trip away. Um, and uh, my family, actually, my parents own a vacation property in California. So I am a lover of all coastal provinces and states um, in Western Canada and the U.S. And um, I feel like if I'm to pick a place to vacation, it's anywhere in those areas would be sort of top of the list for sure. Have you done the Pacific Coast Highway all the way down? I have not. And before we moved back to Edmonton, my husband and I intended to do that, but never got around to it. Um, but now that our daughter is five years old, 
turning or six years old now she is um we might we might sort of as a family venture I would I need to just sort of have the time to spend a few weeks to to go do it but I would love to do that yeah 100 have you done it uh I did it from uh Seattle down to San Diego and it I thought it was going to be awesome but uh, I didn't get the convertible I wanted. They ran out at the rental store or the rental shop. So I, I rode down in a Sebring and that was cool enough. But uh, uh, part of it was in the dark. You stop in a lot of towns. It was it was a little bit, uh, oh, part of it was like washed away because of probably climate change or something. So you had to detour in. So it wasn't as cool as I thought it would be, but I still think you should do it with your daughter for sure. It was cool to like drive against the ocean for like two full days for sure. Yeah, I think it'd be something to experience, especially if you have the time to kind of do it slowly. That would be the thing we want to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I have a great story about that that I'll tell you off air. But the uh, I wanted to touch on the uh, your previous experiences um, with a couple of architectural firms in Vancouver. So one of them, I actually do follow them, the, uh, the Henriquez Partners. Um, you you kind of mentioned really quickly, they do, uh, you know, massive uh, high rises, commercial projects. And then uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, DNA, who you worked with for a while, they do a lot of First Nations work. So maybe talk a little bit about that and how that kind of led you to where you are now or why you were interested in those uh, aspects of architecture first. Yeah, I think... Um... As anyone, any of my classmates can attest to, the job search in Vancouver is very humbling, um, especially when you're in the architectural industry. It's a very, very competitive job market. People come from all over the world and want to work in Vancouver. Um, so I think as a student, it was it was tough. And uh, one, my first summer, I actually came back to Edmonton and worked for the summer. And then um, the second summer, I was hired by David Nearn and Associates. That's the DNA firm you're referring to, um, which was a really amazing experience. Actually, they're situated in North Vancouver, um, and they do, uh, it's actually an, an engineering and architectural practice. And the reason being is because, as you mentioned, they do a lot of, uh, majority of their clients are First Nations, and um, they do a lot of remote work, uh, projects for Indigenous um communities that need uh, community centers is often what they do. They'll do health centers, community centers, they'll do all the civil engineering. So if there's any sort of development required uh, for these buildings and in some really, really amazing remote locations. And I was only there for two months. Um, it was just a summer term, work term, but um, it was a really amazing experience to sort of learn the nuances of, of working with those communities, learning more about things I had nothing about, uh, knew nothing about in terms of um, you know, how you approach a design exercise um, with Indigenous communities. There's a lots of metaphorical references, lots of very, like, sort of spiritual considerations, lots of very, you know, things I, that were really outside of my realm and, and knowledge. And I learned a ton working there and really, really enjoyed it. It was a really, really great experience. And in fact, I think after school, I intended to go potentially work there, um, but also got a, another opportunity that I wanted to sort of see what working for different um, different architectural practices was like. So um, then came the opportunity after graduation to work for a company called Henriquez Partners Architects, which is a, a very well-known um, architectural firm in Vancouver. It's a father and son uh, partner. And Richard Henriquez, who's the founder, is very well-respected architect in Vancouver and has done um, some very amazing socially conscious projects um, and that's kind of their niche or was their niche for many years they did um, you know really affordable affordable housing 
stuff like that. Um, but they, when I was there, um, they were doing really sort of intense, more, um, I would say, larger scale projects with a developer called West Bank was one of their biggest clients. You may have heard of them. <laughs> um, and the project that I was hired to work on was the redevelopment of Oak Ridge Mall. Um, and I don't know if anyone's seen it, but I would definitely recommend looking it up. It is an insane project where they are taking a mall that, uh, I'm not sure the age of the mall, but um, they were taking a mall and our scope of the project was to insert 13 residential towers on the site. So they would renovate the mall to incorporate uh, a massive parkade and then obviously 13 elevators or more um, that needed to protrude through the mall. Um, and so there were like five consultants working on the project, um, a number of stakeholders. Uh, so the mall owner and operator, as well as West Bank as the, the developer of the multifamily. And um, I think there were, when I was there, I want to say there were probably eight to 12 of us in the office that this is all we did was work on this project. And we did physical models. We did many iterations of renderings. Um, my humble role in the project was to take the marketing uh, spreadsheets in terms of housing unit typologies and assemble them in the building. So we had to get like a certain unit mix within the towers. And um, I was tasked with laying those out and making sure they all worked and could access the elevators and we did it over and over and over again <laughs> and um, yeah it was really kind of cool to learn how that process works and um, how you work on a team that, that that's that large and um, the project is actually under construction now like just now so while I was there I was also part of like a number of community uh, engagements where you know we'd go and um, and meet meet the community members and sort of deal with contention around the project and yeah it was a really great experience to kind of see what that was all about and um, the process that a massive project like that um, what it all entails so yeah it was definitely sort of really different from what I'm doing now but um, yeah it was a really really great experience and I think actually some of my um, colleagues a lot of my colleagues actually are still there so it's a really it's a really great firm to work for they have a really good reputation and um, yeah, I loved it. I worked there for, I think it was just over two years and yeah. And now you're here. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So, uh, you transitioned from all of these massive redevelopment projects and now you're working in infill in Edmonton. How did that, uh, transition happen? Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, my father is an architect and, uh, owned an architectural practice here. And I think, you know, as much as we love Vancouver and loved living there, um, my husband and I really prioritize family and we, we thought we, we, I think we always thought we would come back and, um, yeah, just after the two years, we just thought, you know, let's maybe make the move. I really wanted to work alongside my father, um, and the firm that he had, uh, founded. And, um, so I came back and I worked for, at the time it was called Art to Kelsic Brangert Architecture, um, and, Rick um, was actually sort of in the midst of retiring as I came back. His partners were were uh, buying him out of the firm, and um, he he still had other sort of pet projects that um, you know he, I don't think he'll ever retire. So that was kind of um, he's still working, but not sort of practicing in the firm. And so initially, I 
I worked in the firm for maybe about six months. Um, and at that time, um, my brother and father sort of were doing a little bit of development, um, acquiring lots in Edmonton and uh, lot splitting was um, a new thing in the city. And we sort of thought, you know what, like now's the time. Let's let's explore developing one of these lots that, that they had acquired. And um, so it was sort of a side thing and then you know, quickly realized, hey, um, I think that this is something we could, you know, we could do. And we thought, okay, well, maybe I need to sort of invest more time in this, in this side project. And so I sort of parted ways with my role at the architecture firm and um, my father and brother. And we had, um, my aunt at the time was actually our sort of our bookkeeper. The four of us were um, the start of Urbis, and we built two skinny info homes in Bonnie Dune was our first project. And ironically enough, one of the, the houses was my own house. So our very first project was yeah, my own home <laughs> and two skinnies in Bonnie Dune, and the other one was on spec. So um, we sold the neighboring home. So some people may not know, but uh, your father, Rick, was a founding member of IDEA. Uh, and had a lot to do with uh, the ability that Edmonton can do lot splits in Edmonton. Um, he is one of the most passionate people I have ever met. I'm sure like you, your brother, your dad share the same values. Is that originally why you got into, uh, like infill is, is a tricky game in itself. It's it's not always a big money maker that people <laughs> think that it is. Uh, it was it the values that you got into infill for, or uh, how did you make that decision? Yeah, I think like um, obviously spending six years of my life in Vancouver and seeing very dense urban kind of environment, and you know seeing great examples of infill and density and how it can be done properly. Um, moving back to Edmonton and kind of you know, having been inspired by that, I think, you know, and also just, I was only like two and a half years out of school when I moved back here. You know, there's a lot of enthusiasm around different typologies of homes and the possibilities. And uh, one great thing about the program at UBC is it is focused on housing and housing density, because really that is the industry in Vancouver. Um, you know, a lot of architects, that's what they do. They, they design and build houses. That's the main kind of opportunity there. So, you know, I had a lot of ideas and passion around that. So yeah, definitely that, that aligned with, um, you know, my family, we, my dad, like, grew up in Ritchie. Uh, we grew up in Park Allen and Bonnie Dune. Um, and so we'd always kind of lived in the inner city. And um, I think, yeah, we saw opportunity, like we saw, thought, saw, um, you know, the lot splitting thing, I think, you know, there's been contention around it, but I think you see a lot of really great examples of how communities have transformed um, and, you know, people who want a new home but don't want to live in the outskirts can can remain in the communities that they maybe lived in an apartment in or, or grew up in and, and have the opportunity to live in a newer home uh, or sort of more modern floor plan. And yeah, so I think that passion and that sort of care for for Edmonton's mature neighborhoods definitely is what got us going and doing what we're doing um, for sure like I think we really want to see Edmonton grow on the inner city and and this is the way from our opinion to do that so yeah 
Yeah, we'll get into it a little bit later. I know your personal house, the most recent one that uh, you and your family built, uh, is like a great showcase of what you can do now since all of the changes have happened um, and how people can potentially afford uh, to live in mature neighborhoods where those options didn't exist before. Uh, but you're a family shop. What sets Urbis apart from other companies? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Rick and I both come from a design background. So um, having design in-house is something that sets us apart from other builders. I think a lot of builders say, you know, we do design, but, you know, we actually do it in-house. We have in-house drafting. We have in-house interior design. So that definitely sets us apart. And I think, um, you know, I think a lot of people, when they want to build a custom home, don't understand. I mean, the, the process around it is really kind of one of the biggest questions I get. Um, process, timeline, and cost. Obviously, everyone wants to know how much it's going to cost. But um, I think, you know, what because we have everything in-house, I think as far as kind of expediting the timeline, that's something that that we can we can offer and we can do for people. Um, you know, we're, you're not sort of having to like go to one designer, go through that process, then take the drawings, approach different builders, and then also approach interior designers. Like we have kind of everything all under one roof. And um, I think with that comes like heavy accountability for the budget implications of the design decisions that we're making. Um, so, you know, every house is a prototype and obviously, the market has been extremely volatile in terms of cost of construction, but um, we have a lot of experience and knowledge and know the implications of certain design decisions and can help kind of hold our client's hand and really making sure we're not over-designing um, or raising the flag when we see something that we know is going to be extremely expensive. Um, because, yeah, ultimately, like, the best thing you can do with a designer, and I think a lot of designers don't do this, is ask people, okay, well, what is your budget? Um and you know, design to that budget, and and that's something that that we do, and we really care about. I mean, we sort of treat people's money like it it was our own, everyone's house like it was our own. So, um, you know, we want it to be the best it can be, but also we don't want you to be spending things on that don't make sense. And I think another thing too is, you know, we have the design team engaging subcontractors, getting preliminary pricing on on the things we're doing. Um, so you know, that that's, there's huge accountability in that and making sure um, we're asking the right questions, we're value engineering where we can, we're not selecting things when there's, you know, an equal comparable that costs less. Um, so I think that there's sort of not the finger pointing from builder to designer, we're all working together um, and working for our clients uh, to make sure they're getting their dream for the best kind of value um, that we can provide. Are most people coming to you with a lot and then having you design a dream home on a lot that they already own? Or um, do you, you have an, a, a group of lots that you're marketing as well? How do, how do you mostly find your clients? So I think uh, it's evolved. Like I would say three years ago, we did have quite a variety of opportunities, whether it was specs under construction or vacant lots. Um, but we sort of pivoted into doing solely custom. So over the last year, we had one spec and nine custom projects. So, um, and that's kind of the largest volume we had done um, since we started. And having nine custom homes was, was, um, was a lot. I think we, we had a bigger team. And so it, it was good. But um, definitely, there's a lot of learning lessons for us in terms of custom homes and 
what that requires. But um, as far as kind of how clients come to us, um, as of late, um, we do have one spec home. So we have a listing that, that people can take advantage of. Um, but often we have people come to us um, either without a lot or with a lot. And in the case they come to us without a lot, um, another kind of niche of our business is that we can do what we call design feasibility. Um, and some people even write it into their real estate offer, like their realtor can kind of negotiate it into the offer that they want to do some due diligence around design feasibility. And we can actually do a quick site plan sketch uh, based on the interpretation of the bylaw and, the, and tell them what they can build on the lot so they can make sure they can get the size of the garage, size of main floor plan. Um, and yeah, so that's something we can do for clients so we can help them with their lot purchase or if they do have a lot uh, and come to us. Um, then yeah, we're just doing sort of a similar exercise, but we do start the process with um, what we call design concepts. So we actually like to uh, charge like a more modest fee off the bat to do more napkin style sketching, um, whether it's just in SketchUp or by hand, um, but we're just getting the iterations of the plan um, and square footages down on paper and just really kind of puzzling together the program requirements that the client wants. And then um, and then moving it into computer and sort of more technically drafting it from there. So, yeah, we, we like to do like, you know, two, three meetings with the client, really hash out the ideas um, and and start to talk about the architectural style as well. We'll maybe start, start to mask the house um, so we can get an idea of, of you know, the roof line and the, the look on the outside as well. Um, so you're getting a lot of information uh, really early on before we move it too far along. Um I, you know, I really appreciate that about our process because if people are wanting a custom home, often they are, you know, there's a reason they are, you know, particular or they haven't been able to find exactly what they want. So being able to hash out um, the ideas and work together and collaborate um, and work in a really iterative process, I think works really well before we get too far along and people are kind of settling um, for something, kind of having to pay big bucks to go backwards in the process. So yeah, that's kind of how we approach the very early steps. Nice. Yeah. Collaboration really early. I like that. Um, Urbis is doing more than just infill now, it seems. there's You have, you have a whole bunch uh, of stuff going on in Lac St. Anne. Is that a recent uh, expansion or what, what's going on out there? No, the estates at Water's Edge at Lac St. Anne, I think it's been in, it, it's in its like 14th or 15th year. Um, and that is another family business endeavor. Um, we came into an opportunity actually my father and his brother um, and my cousin came um, into opportunity to acquire a large piece of land that was lakefront um, just uh, outside the town of Gunn on Lac St. Anne and which is about uh, people probably are more familiar with Alberta Beach is kind of the main um, little summer village um, out at Lac St. Anne it's about maybe a 10 minute drive from Alberta Beach and yeah, initially was an RV park. Um, and then they started doing some mod construction on the lakefront and evolved to 135 subdivide lot, subdivided lots. Um, and now we are in the final strokes of that project uh, here 13 or 14 years later. Um, and there are six lots left and a few spec homes. Um, and then it will be fully built out and completed. That is so exciting. It must feel very surreal to be at the final stages of that project. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a family legacy. And um, 
it's actually really beautiful out there. Like I can't even, I can't believe like it's, it's really cool to see it kind of mostly completed and there's some beautiful homes and the people that live out there are amazing. It's a really cool little gem um, on Laxinan. And I think it was funny cause I was, I've been in and out of it involvement over the years. And at one point I was like working in the show home and <laughs> helping sell, sell houses over the summer. And we'd do some marketing or we'd go to trade shows and people would be like, Whoa, is this in Kelowna? And like, you're like, no, it's in Laxina. <laughs> but there's a, there's like a pool there. There's a clubhouse. They put a skating rink on the lake in the winter. Um, and it's all these little craftsmen bungalows or uh, walkout style homes for the most part is the majority of them. And um, yeah, it feels, feels really great out there. It's a great little community. So we're pretty proud of it. So you talked a little bit about design there in in the community in uh, Laxinan. Um, but what about the design process and your design team when you're working within mature neighborhoods in Edmonton and other areas? What's that process like for people? Yeah, so um, with building in the mature neighborhoods, um, it's quite different than designing and building um, out in rural counties of Alberta. Um, there is a, a lot more uh, involvement with the city of Edmonton, uh, bylaws, regulations, inspections, compliance, all that stuff. Um, so I think, you know, in working with Urbis, you're hiring someone who has a ton of experience um, working with the city of Edmonton and working within the context of mature neighborhoods and sort of specifically dealing with all the sensitivities that go into building in an established neighborhood where uh, some of these neighborhoods are, you know, some of the most desirable in the city and people are very proud of their communities and want to protect one another and protect their own property. So there's a lot of kind of nuances um, that goes into how we kind of approach a project and approach, um, you know, a permit with a variance. So um, you know, what goes into that is not only designing the home to the, the homeowner's liking, but it's making sure that we've considered, um, you know, all the nuances of the bylaw, what sort of variances we're going to have. Um, and one thing that we like to do is probably more involved than other designers or builders, um, because we are going to be the builder of the project as well. So when we're, we're submitting for a development permit, we are sure to help our clients engage their neighbors. And um, what we like to do is help them draft a letter, um, provide drawings, renderings, diagrams, um, you know, collaborate with them on that front and then encourage them to go door knocking um, so that we're, while the city is providing their notification, we are providing a letter that um, defines what each variance, because it's often like legal jargon that people don't understand, um, you know, we'll provide an explanation for each variance to say this is why and this is why this design, um, why we did this with this design. Often there's there's a, a positive reason that, um, you know, neighbors can understand or we're providing a rationale for why, you know, the design is considerate of certain contextual elements, be it each neighbor or an adjacent park or um yeah so yeah we we try to work really closely like i don't think we've ever had a, a project go in for a variance where we haven't done neighbor engagement um and we've had a lot of 
every every time we do it, it's a new experience and depends on the neighborhood and the neighbors. And um, we have a really good success rate, though. We've not gone to SDAB uh, except for a garage application, uh, garage addition uh, for a suite. Um, we have not gone to SDAB yet. So I think that's a pretty good track record. And I would say we can, the neighbor engagement, I think, um, although sometimes raises contention, uh, I think in the end, often you're able to mitigate that with just really having a face-to-face conversation and as much work um, as that is, it's much better than losing the months that it takes to go to SDAB. So, um, you know, we just really work with clients to handhold them and encourage them to get out there, meet their neighbors. And um, the most like recent experience or uh, example I have is uh, some of our clients, they were going to go trick-or-treating with their kids in their new neighborhood and meet their neighbors and say, hey, like we wanted to come back and we have a little letter to deliver to you. Um, because we're building a new house, you know, down the street. And um, I just heard from them this week and they submitted seven letters of neighbor support. So it was really good timing that they could kind of go meet everyone while trick-or-treating and um, obviously has had a really positive impact on their development permit application. So, yeah, I think that the neighbor engagement and the the service we provide to assist clients with that is is huge. And um, I would say that's one of the the biggest sort of unique things about infill um, and approaching infill um, differently than sort of building in an acreage or uh, in greenfield context. So, yeah. A hundred percent. If you're sending a letter where you're explaining variance, you are already steps ahead because I I don't know how many times I've heard over the years how terrible those city letters are. Like, I feel like they cause panic. They cause panic. Yeah. And to be honest, like, Kudos to the expedited infill certification program, because I actually thought for me, someone who has a lot of experience and knows design and knew a lot of the content, the the session on neighbor engagement, I actually like learned a lot. And I think approaching neighbor engagement with empathy and just realizing like people are very attached and emotional about their homes and their their neighbors. And who knows, maybe they grew up on that street and the tree house in the yard of the house you're going to tear down has some like, they have some attachment to that. Like you just don't know and sort of approaching it from that aspect. And you just really got to talk to people. And I think to us, you know, going and meeting, like often we'll go to if we need to and we'll say, Hey, you know, I'm Katie, I'm with Urbis, you know, people feel relief because, you know, we're not just some builder that doesn't care and doesn't care what you think. So I think, um, just yeah, putting a face to the name and and making yourself available to answer questions. Um, although it seems like a lot of extra work, it actually makes things a lot easier uh, throughout the build. So it's I think it's invaluable to be sure you're doing that as part of the process. So I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about your infill builds. I think it's fascinating that the very first project that you did, you took on doing your own house. Uh, that's a bold, that's a bold move. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you now live in a second infill house. Is that right? I've built twice now and I think I'm done (laughs) as much as I love my job. Um, I was telling Mariah in preparation for this, this, uh, this podcast that, uh, designing for yourself is very, very tricky. It's, um, exhausting. I tend to, you sort of change your mind a million times. And 
Um, so I think I'm done now, but uh, yeah, we've built two homes. Uh, the first one we built was in Bonnie Dune. As much as I love that house, my husband and I just thought it was a little bit too big. The lot was actually amazing. It backed onto a lane that was on the ravine. So it had a really unique size. It was um, 185 feet deep, which gave us like an amazingly large backyard. Most lots in Edmonton are like 120 to 140 feet deep. So it had a massive backyard for a skinny lot. Um, and we loved it. The backyard faced west. We backed onto Mill Creek Ravine. Um, it was an amazing location, but the house ultimately, because the lot was so big, the house was quite big. Um, we, we tend to kind of max houses out on the lot when we can just for, you know, resale value. And so, um, yeah, we just thought the house was too big and, um, we always desired to build something that had an income suite in it. So, um, we decided to look for a lot and we thought it would take us, we wanted to live in, in old Strathcona just like the idea of being close to White Avenue and there's some really great schools in that neighborhood. So that was kind of what we thought we would look into. And I think within like a month and a half, the perfect lot came up. It was a really great price, a really small lot, but a great price. And it, in doing the quick math and a quick pencil sketch, I realized, okay, well, we can build the size of house and garage we want. So let's do it. Um, and then soon, <laughs> Sooner than we thought, we were building our second home. So, um, but the great part about Old Strathcona is there's a lot of rental demand. So we actually decided to build something with a basement suite and a garage suite, which oddly enough, the zoning on that lot was RF3. So two suites is actually a, a variance in that zoning, um, which I'm hoping with the new bylaw will change. Um, and uh, despite that, we were able to to get the variance and and build what we wanted there. So yeah, so it's a smaller house with two income suites, um, and it's the perfect size for us. So yeah, we love it. My wife and I, when we uh, were looking for the a new place, we also looked at a lot in Strathcona in Old Strathcona and went down like the design process for it with with a builder. And I agree with you; it was fascinating, but also. Uh, overwhelming. You start like sitting around, uh, like pacing out whether or not closets that you've designed are like big enough and if they're in the right location and like window spacing and everything. We ended up not going with it, uh, not because of the design or anything, but we, we, we needed to accelerate our timeline a little bit. But I like, I agree with you 100%. You're living my life in old Strathcona there. Um, why, why is this one your last one? Oh, I just don't have the energy to do it again. I told Mariah too, I was saying like, if, if I was to do it again, if maybe if someone on my team would design the interior, maybe I'd do it. I, I just, you know what? I, yeah, I do this for a living. I love it. I love helping people design and build their houses, but designing for yourself is, is a lot of work and it's a lot of stress and emotion and um, our house turned out amazing. I'm super happy with it. I, my husband, I think as well, or, you know, we think it's perfect. And yeah, I just don't know. It's, it's, it's very stressful. <laughs> so, so when my clients are freaking out, I'm just sort of like, you know what, I know exactly how you feel. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of money, a lot of work. Um, and it's on the side from your job. And so um, I think, I think I'm good for now, at least for the next 10 years. Watch, I'll be putting my foot in my mouth and be doing something sooner than I think. But yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Well, Katie, you're like right out of the gate of just moving in. Correct me if I'm wrong. It, it's been less than a year that you've been in this new home. Yeah, it was a year last month. So yeah. 
we've been there for a year. It's just, it's such a beautiful project. I, I've got to visit it. Uh, and it's really interesting compared to some of the other uh, single detached homes that I've seen from some of our fabulous members. Uh, we've talked about that it's a secondary suite and a garden suite. Uh, but your secondary suite is half your basement or a little over half your basement. Yeah, why'd you choose that? Yeah, so I think um, I think with people with kids can attest to a basement can be an important space to, especially when you're having company, to say, hey, the kids go downstairs so you can have a little bit of peace and quiet. It's nice to have sort of two spaces, um, you know, to watch TV or work out or whatever it may be. Um, so having a space in the basement was important to us. And um, with the, the footprint of the house, we were able to accommodate a 550 square foot a one bedroom suite in the basement. And for us too, I think we, we wanted a smaller suite in our basement. Um, just, I think, it, you know, the thought of having more than one tenant down there, like multiple couples or um, wasn't really something we were interested in having a smaller suite with one person sort of seems like the best scenario for a tenant that's living uh, within, you know, the four corners of our home. So um, yeah, it would all worked out size wise. So we have a, a family room and a mechanical room as part of our main house and then a one bedroom suite um, as part of the, the basement suite. Yeah, it's such a lovely location too. I know uh, when I was going to the U of A, I had a bunch of friends living in basements around Strathcona and areas. Uh, and definitely their Christmas parties were a little dingy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the homes we toured that that we were looking at buying um, to tear down had some pretty grungy suites in them. I think I saw one even that had it was like th rented as three bedrooms that had a shared kitchen and everyone had like a padlock on the exterior of their door and seemed a little dodgy. But yeah, no, we have a brand new 550 square foot suite in our basement with in-suite laundry and uh, we have some great tenants. Um, so, so far so good. Yeah, and uh, I keep hearing and, and I'm hoping it's true because something that me and my husband really want to do is that once you start adding density to your lot, uh, it makes the option to live in the neighborhood that you want a lot more feasible. Is Was that what you found as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. And even sort of our financing to have two suites that helped us get our financing. And um, it's like amazing how it's offsetting the cost. I mean, it was expensive to build three kitchens, five bathrooms between the three units. Um, yeah, so it wasn't cheap, but um, the payoff is great. And I think for us to that neighborhood, like if we were ever decided to move on from this home, I think we would we would if we could afford to, we would keep it and keep it as a rental. Um but I think ultimately this is where we want to be and uh, it functions great for us. I, I don't mind having tenants in our basement and the garage tenant. Like I, I honestly, over this last year, I think I see seen him like three times. Like it's just having a garage tenant, you like don't even notice it. It's quite amazing actually. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really great for, for, from an affordability standpoint. And I think for me, just like, just to allow for, um, you know, an option for a new rental unit. I think some people, you know, they don't want to live in an apartment or, um, you know, you're a single person, you, you want the security of, of having a, a landlord or a neighbor, like a dire directly adjacent. Um, if you do live, you know, in something that, that is a garage suite, for example. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it works really well from our perspective and for offering options for renters as well. So, 
Yeah, I know you and I also uh, share a passion for timeless style. Um, and we kind of gushed over the fact that fashion and styles change and trends happen. There's still uh, timeless things that we both look towards. Uh, but I'm so interested in your perspective as someone who's like gone through communications and design, been able to build so many beautiful spaces for people. What does timeless style kind of mean to you? I think that there's a lot of really amazing things on the internet and on Pinterest and in magazines in terms of trends and, um, you know, things look really beautiful in photographs and everyone has amazing iPhones anymore that can take these incredible little vignette or motif pictures of design details and different sort of tile patterns and colors. And, um, but I think for me, like timeless style and the way to sort of approach a design exercise can sort of start more generally and um, sort of looking to fashion, um, looking to texture or nature for different sort of ideas um, and sort of ways to, to sort of as a jumping off point um, can be like a great place to start. I think that um, approaching it from the perspective of like, what is the mood or the feeling, you know, um, asking questions to clients about kind of like, how does your home want to, you to how do you want your home to make you feel? Um, that kind of thing, just sort of taking sort of a step back and bigger picture look and, and how, you know, how you want the space to feel is really kind of a good place to start and, and then going from there. So, you know, assessing a palette um, you know, often cl clients sort of come to us with like a Pinterest board or a house account. Um, and instead of just kind of ripping off and repeating, what we tend to do is kind of curate um, and derive ideas from, from those images and really kind of take it from there and really establish kind of a, a design direction that would um, really kind of meet their needs and, and give them the vibe and the feeling that they desire. So, uh, and it's really interesting when a client comes to you and the images are like very mishmashed and they're like super apologetic about it. Like they're like, Oh, I don't even know what I need. And like, it's so funny because often we can pull from that, like the essence of what they're looking for. Like we can sort of see a pattern and then we start to build, uh, what we call as the first step I'm speaking sort of mostly about the interior design at this point, um, a lookbook. So we do like a, a mood board for each space. Um, and we take probably like a month to six weeks to do this exercise. So it's sort of like the, the heavy lifting of the, the design pitch. Um, and then we'll sit down with clients and show them sort of holistically our vision for the home. Um, and often it's pretty smooth sailing from there because you've, that you've, felt confidence in them. They're like, whoa, they, you know, they got it. They understood what I was looking for and, um, and a lot of excitement actually. So that's probably like one of the funnest parts of the process is, is pitching the interior. Cause I think people get really super stoked. Um, and all the decisions we have to make in front of them, which is a lot, um, you know, it becomes really easy because then we're just sort of using that lookbook as our Bible to really infer then all the decisions in front of us from there. Um, so yeah, I think, thinking, you know, really assessing bigger picture, um, looking to fashion and, and nature for design input um, and curating and pulling the essence out of people's sort of inspo images is how we like to approach um, the design exercise in terms of the interior design. 
So before I let Ryan go into more technical questions, there's one thing that you and I talked about earlier this week that I'm just dying for you to share with other people. Uh, when you were designing your home, I think you did something a little bit uh, like untraditional for Edmonton's uh, like design choices, but very traditional from other country from another country. Um, yeah, I just I wanted you to kind of share a bit about your experience while you're across the pond. Oh, yes. Okay. I remember what you're talking about. I was like, what did we do? Oh, yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, I th came from the question you had asked of like, what's the most in unique thing about your home? And I think, so in the previous home I built, um, we had quite a generous kind of master, sorry, primary suite, but I'd always regretted kind of not having the bathroom of my dreams. And when we were designing this home, you know, space was limited. And so when I was laying out the the primary suite, there just wasn't enough space to really do what I wanted. I wanted a tub in our bathroom and there just wasn't the space. And um, we had recently gone on vacation and visited uh, some family friends in England. And it was really interesting because we toured um, a home of our family friend and they had renovated. And it was actually just outside of London. So quite an old home that had been renovated. And I learned that when you build in the UK, um, you don't get like uh, millwork and like closets and appliances like that's not included. You have to bring that with you. You have to people often move with those things. And so you know, like closets don't often come with a property when you buy them. So in their primary suite, they had all these millwork closets and they were just sort of open to the bedroom. And I thought, oh, this is beautiful. Like it looks great. It functions great. So when I was sitting down to design our primary suite, I sort of thought, oh, like, can't get this bathroom to fit. And it sort of dawned on me like, hey, I should do all millwork closets. So of the four walls of our primary bedroom, um, two of them are closets. So we have an amazing amount of linear, linear feet of closet. Um, and they were all built by our cabinet makers, so all custom closets. And it allowed me to then put um, the size of bathroom uh, ensuite bathroom that we wanted. So we have this very spacious, generous uh, primary bedroom with lots of closet space and the bathroom that we wanted. So um, I think that's something you don't see very often in houses in in Canada. And so that was something that, that I really like about our house that I thought was kind of kind of unique. The solution for a small space, but to get kind of everything we wanted. So yeah, no compromise there. Uh, yeah, I just thought it was so fascinating, especially uh, I'm in the process of rejigging my whole apartment uh, to make room for another person. And I would prefer if they had a small closet because they don't need lots of things right now. Um, and I just find our cabinet options are so much more limited here. I, I, in my spare time, I follow a lot of UK influencers. Yeah. They have beautiful closets mm -hmm. or uh, cabinets. And here I'm just like, oh, it's like I've got got a very few limited choices unless I've got a ton of money lying around that I didn't know I had. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Fortunately, our cabinet maker was up to the task and he built all the millwork um, in our house. So I feel pretty lucky that I was able to kind of leverage him to do that for us. I want to ask if uh, over the last couple of years, uh, when our world went through what it went through, how have people's Pinterest pages and house pages, have they evolved or their style, what they're asking for, are client asks changing over the past couple of years? Yeah, I think for us through COVID, 
Um, I don't know if it's maybe like Pinterest boards, but floor plan requests, I think, have evolved. And um, I spoke to this about a, a bit about this at the symposium. I was on a panel at the Idea Infill Symposium, um, and this question came up sort of what's the latest and greatest. And we're seeing actually as of late, uh, quite a number of clients come to us and ask for um, in-law suites uh, within the houses that they're building. So people are coming to us um, with, you know, the desire to build their dream home, um, but they want to accommodate an in-law suite um, for either themselves to age in place or for their um, aging parents to live with them. And in the case of the two current clients we have that are doing this, um, it's both want to house aging parents. And uh, as such, um, we are either roughing in a spot for an elevator um, or putting them in. And I don't think, like a lot of people don't know about this, but um, Ram Elevators is a local uh, company. They're in Edmonton and they're one of, I think they are the largest residential elevator manufacturer in North America. Um, and so we have right in our backyard a company that specializes in this. And I think I saw something as of late where you can actually get grants for elevators and houses. Um, so that's something to look into if you're interested in it. But the cost of it is about $30,000. So not insignificant. But um, often what we'll do is we will like plan for it. We've built houses before where we just have the five foot uh, cavity that we'll utilize as closet space. And if a client down the road wants to put um, an elevator in, they can. The slab in the basement's designed to house it as well. Um, the floor systems would be designed to be taken out in the case um, a client wants to put an elevator in. So it's something that we can plan for. And in future, if clients want it, we can put them in. Um, but definitely, I think the in-law suites um, in the house for, for aging in place and generational living intergenerational living is something that we're seeing a lot of so and I think too like everyone wants an amazing home office like that's not something anyone is compromising on anymore it is an absolute must and I think too uh, the need for a theater room in houses has evolved to everyone just wants a, a space to to work out at home so fitness spaces and basements um, are another must-have that I don't think we really design houses anymore um, without them unless they're really modest size like my own home didn't have the room for it but um, yeah a lot of the houses we're doing are, are decent size and can can fit that that program so and then lastly uh, I'm sure you're familiar the city of Edmonton's undergoing its zoning bylaw renewal project right now um, I'm curious what types of challenges related to zoning you uh, you typically run into that you're hoping get addressed through the project yeah I'm just gonna be super cliche and say it because it's just you have to say it, everyone in Edmonton wants attached garages. And so, yeah, that's the one thing that I think if the city could see that this is like an absolute must in our climate, people, they want their garages in the rear, but they want them attached. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a great way to do it. If you can do the attachment um, at the right height um, and articulate it properly from the side yard so you're not creating this big long wall um, with the connection. I think that it's something definitely that these mature neighborhoods, um, they're, they, they're, they're everywhere um, and there's a reason. It's because people want them, um, but the process to get an attached garage is, you know, it's a long one, it's uncertain. And yeah, if I could change anything, it would be allowing rear attached garages in the mature neighborhoods. Just rear, not front? 
No, I think Garage should stay in the rear. I mean, there there are another thing I guess I didn't mention that I should um, is we find a lot of people are building on ravine adjacent lots, often with no lane access. So um, that's where we're seeing front attached garages. So there is definitely um, a place for them. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I like boulevard trees. I like having a lack of, you know, garage overhead door on the front street. So I think if garages can go in the rear, they should. <laughs> but be able to be attached. Yeah, I think if anything, the week between uh, Halloween and the first week of November showed us exactly why we need attached garage. It went from fall to deep winter in 10 seconds. It was so depressing. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or to last winter where the freeze thaw was a nightmare and it was frankly unsafe to be walking on sidewalks in the city. So yeah, I think too, like a lot of our clients want it, want to age in place. So they, they want to, you know, they're thinking about their lives when they're in their seventies and probably don't want to go outside. Um, to access their garage. So I think there's like, there's a number of reasons people want to attach garages, but yeah, our in our climate, it, it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, before we let you go, and thanks so much for spending your afternoon with us, uh, I'd like to give you the opportunity to call to action to our listeners here today. Yeah, for sure. I think um, for me, um, one of the things that I think has a huge um, impact for any sort of infill project that you might see pop up in your neighborhood is that, you know, if you do see a notification from the city regarding a variance, or you do get a letter from a neighbor saying, hey, look, I'm building my dream home down the street. You know, here's here's what it looks like. Here's the details. Um, and you aren't opposed to it. Just take the five minutes, write an email, sign a letter of support. It'll save your neighbor a ton of time, a ton of stress, a ton of money, frankly, um, because, uh, you know, that goes a long way to helping the process and um, can have a huge impact. And I think, you know, it's it's not as common as I wish it was. And um, to sort of create that certainty for your neighbor and help them out, um, it's good karma. <laughs> and I think um, can make a huge difference to the ease at which, you know, developments with variances go up in these neighborhoods. And that would be my my call to action for for anyone out there who's listening yeah yeah i i don't think well i think actually over the past two years people have learned what uncertainty feels like and people who are who are building their homes go through a lot of uncertainty um and to know that they have a friendly face in the community that would go a long way at least in my books um so yeah hopefully you've inspired someone to write a write a nice <laughs> letter <laughs> Yeah, thanks, guys. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, thanks so much for spending your afternoon with us. It was so lovely, Katie. Thanks. You too. Thanks, Katie. Well, I am so grateful Katie was available for this episode. I have been looking forward to having her on the podcast forever. Yeah, I think we bugged her for long enough that she finally just capitulated. Yeah, I was like, I know you're busy with clients and the market's really hot right now. Please come on the podcast. Do this for us, please. Yeah, this is about us. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, she's very client-oriented. So um, it, it, it took a while, I think, because 
she just had projects on the go. So uh, as we move into the holiday season, everyone slows down a little bit. And finally, I was like, yes, give me that time. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) Persistence is key there. Yeah. (laughs) One of my favorite parts. uh, So behind the scenes, we do a bit of a pre-interview. Um, just to find out like what people are really passionate about and kind of get into that. And when she told me about how houses work in England and that it doesn't come with the cupboards and all the closets, and they take the appliances with them. I was like, is that genius or is that crazy? <laughs> I don't know. Where do you stand, Ryan? It blew my mind. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, having moved, I've moved so many times in my life. Uh, I couldn't imagine adding cabinets and appliances and whatever else counts to the amount of stuff that I moved. The most recent time that we moved, we, we hired movers cause you know, I just got to preserve my body and, and whatever, but it, it was just more convenient, but we filled that truck that they brought and I like all of a sudden you're bringing a second truck or I guess I just have left stuff like it just it blows my mind to even think of having to like worry about like taking my cabinets off the wall and not getting new ones at the at the new spot I go what what did you think of that yeah well it seems like I don't know here uh so much so many of things are like custom built for certain sizes of rooms certain looks and feel um and like as i mentioned in the episode i'm looking to like buy some sort of armor for our second bedroom right now and what is out there is not super fabulous <laughs> and so if more people had to look for armoires there would be better things at a price point that i could afford uh if i had thousands of extra dollars to drop i think i could get the style that i was looking for uh but you know I, i'm pretty sure i'm gonna end up at ikea <laughs> Right. Or you're going to get this armoire that you, you're going to spend the money, you're going to get the nice armoire, and then you're just going to travel with it and move with it a hundred more times throughout your life. Yeah. Well, and I'm like, okay, so then do I take it when I move out of here in a year or two? Like, I guess. Or maybe like, (laughs) hopefully the next person really wants it, then I don't have to move with it. Yeah. It's so funny because when you're like when you're looking for homes here, uh, like the cabinets, I always find like is one of those things where realtors will just like wave their hand, and just be like, oh, like if you don't like the cabinets, you can always just refinish them, get new ones or whatever. But over there, you're just taking taking it all with you, which uh, it just it's two different ways of looking at things. Well, and I wonder, like I'll have to look into it. Is it just the millwork in the bedrooms, or is it also in the kitchens as well? Oh, I see. Yeah, because uh, she did say they take the appliances. And also that, like, then you have to worry about getting appliances if you don't have appliances. Like, I feel like we have a system where, like, if you're getting into your first home or you're renting, you don't have all these extra costs. But if you were in that situation, like, moving out for the first time, now you have to pay for for a fridge, a stove, a dishwasher, a microwave, like, all these things that could traditionally be already built in. Yeah. Unless you have an extra five grand hanging out. One time I moved a washer and dryer from one move to another. Um, And you have to be so careful apparently with the washing machines because any little like 
you know, recoil can like screw up how it's uh, aligned or the, Oh, maybe it was the dryer. The drum of the dryer or something is like really precarious in there and like has to be super in this one spot. So I had to bubble wrap the crap out of this thing. And I was taking it on the highway driving between Winnipeg and Brandon, which is like a two hour drive on crappy highways. And every pothole that I hit, I was like, Oh, is that the end of the washing machine? Oh, is that the end of the washing machine? So having to do that, like, uh, yeah, I I'm thankful that we, generally get appliances that come with places that we uh that we get here yeah well i'm like i think north american size appliances are also much different than what you're getting in the uk yeah that's a good point yeah that's a yeah. good point <laughs> but still i'm glad we don't have to do that <laughs> yeah no kidding um, if I may, I want to jump in and talk a little bit about the Pacific Northwest because Katie uh, gushed about it. I'm curious if you've ever traveled to like Seattle or Portland or anywhere up there. So I went to Seattle on my honeymoon and I loved it. It was so gorgeous. Uh, I would move there in a heartbeat if it wasn't in the States, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's uh, it's an awesome place. and I knew you'd like it because um, I went there probably for the first time in 2018. I haven't been back since, so I don't know why I said the first time, but um, they have like a speakeasy thing going on there. So there's all these like back alley bars that you have to knock three times or know a password and or like follow somebody on Instagram and then be able to get in. And I, I found that fascinating. That was awesome. But also it's it felt like a city of all of these small little white abs. So there was like you know, nodes and corridors, I suppose. So there's all these little cool nodes and neighborhood hubs. And then the, and then there's like a residential area around it. And there's just like a, a group of them that make up Seattle, which I found fascinating. Like each of these little neighborhoods has something cool in it. So um, yeah, nodes and corridors, maybe this will be our future. <laughs> I hope so. Everywhere I went was just so fun. Like it had a bit of its own personality. Wasn't too, too different from other areas because it all had like what you need or would want in your neighborhood, uh, but with its own like flavor and spice. And I really like that. And so many small, like tiny restaurants and uh, some of the best like hand pulled noodles I've ever had. And all the food scene was there. So good. <laughs> yeah. The only other thing that I remember was uh, I was there when it rained, which I wanted to see. Cause I was like, oh, I've got to see like one of these rainstorms. They, take rain they, they like rain doesn't affect them whatsoever like you could tell who the locals were versus who like the the outer towners were the locals have like you know really nice arcteryx gear but just like raincoats like no umbrellas they're just walking around with these like raincoats and 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 whatever like a hood up or something i saw a guy like still jogging and and he stopped to do like push-ups on the sidewalk in the middle of the rain it was insane <laughs> Um, so the way that they've like not embraced the rain, but they're just kind of indifferent to it. That was kind of fascinating to me too. Yeah. I, uh, I ended up buying a raincoat while I was there cause it was just like a beautiful color and something I would never see here. I get compliments on it all the time and I was like, oh, well we don't get a ton of rain in Edmonton. And I feel like since then we've gotten more rain. So that's my fault. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Thanks for bringing that. The other thing that I found fascinating um, from uh, talking to Katie was about their approach to engagement. Um, I think offline, she mentioned she really learned a lot from our uh, communication day at uh, the Builder Education Program about how to communicate with your neighbors and that type of thing. But regardless, sounds like they're doing the right thing. Their approach to engagement, they go out and actually detail what variances they're asking for and give neighbors like a rationale, which, you know, seems like such a small, small thing, but it's, you know, 
like you said, they've only been to SDAB, the appeal board once. And that was because they appealed something. They've never been appealed by neighbors. And I think a lot of that is probably their, uh, their approach to engagement. I found it awesome. What did you think? Yeah, I, uh, well, you'll hear in our next episode, uh, we just recorded that one as well. Uh, that person also sang praises of that chorus. And I think, so you helped teach it. And uh, this other gentleman named Jim and Jim is a neighbor. Uh, he's built his own infill. He lived in a heritage home. Uh, he professionally does communications for uh, his career. And it is by far like one of my favorite days because I think it, it really shapes the way uh, people go out and approach communities. Because, yeah, those those letters from the city are scary and like they don't make any sense. They're terrible. No, uh, no harm to any lawyers out there. I know it has to be written in a certain way sometimes. That's right. But like, I feel like they incite fear and make the process way more hard than it needs to be. Yeah, putting in references to the section of the zoning bylaw, like who's double checking that information. And I know it's like you said, it's probably some legal reason or something, but it's like, uh, oh, your neighbor has a reduced rear yard setback. We've approved this. Uh, Here's a section of the zoning bylaw. Please go check yourself because we're not going to provide any rationale for it. Yeah. And like, okay, so if I'm a concerned neighbor or an interested neighbor and I get that letter, then I go to the zoning bylaw, read it. It makes no sense to me. Good luck with that. Yeah, good luck finding that, first of all. Yeah, (laughs) Find it, read it, try and figure out what it means, trying to cross-reference it to different things and, like, decisions that were made by council two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. What is a municipal development plan? Like, that's (laughs) not fair. (laughs) What are we asking community members to do here? Um, So, yeah, I I really appreciated that uh, Katie and her team go out and, like, put a face to who's building and why they're building it and why they're asking for certain variances because the rules don't make sense and they were built a long time ago, uh, not for the needs of today. And honestly, rules often go out of style and out of practice real fast. So communication is always going to be necessary. The other thing about communication is learning, (laughs) continuous learning. Um, So in our last episode, uh, Kim had talked about primary suite versus master suites. And I was like, oh, that was, that's an interesting flag that she made. And then I went and got my hair done and my hairdresser did the same thing. (laughs) And I was like, I feel like I'm out of the loop. (laughs) what's happening and so my hairdresser explained why the change is made uh to primary suite uh which if you don't know yourself go read up on it it is more than i can explain it is a lengthy history and very important uh and katie talked about it quite a few times on this episode too so that was really cool to see the we're becoming more inclusive in our language and updating as we go yeah, agreed. I, I've noticed the same thing. Like a, a few realtors or builders are kind of catching themselves and, and changing that language. And it's been a fairly recent thing. So you and I were joking that, like, did we miss some sort of a press release that this was happening? Or, um, but yeah, so we had to go educate ourselves on that as well. So yeah, it's it, it's a good thing. Yeah, I uh, I try and stay young and hip on TikTok. And uh, <laughs> like, I didn't even get it on TikTok. <laughs> TikTok is not covering language. Sometimes it does, but yeah, I, I missed it there. I totally missed it. But Kate, my hairdresser, shout out to her. <laughs> she, 
<laughs> she schooled me over uh, over updating my hairstyle. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with me today, Ryan. I got a jet. Uh, I'm running late to something, but I wanted to say thanks so much to Michelle uh, for listening into our podcast. Um, she is one of like the most fabulous designers in Edmonton. If you haven't checked out her website, go check her out, Design Hall. She is lovely. Excellent. Yeah. Go have a great day. Bye. Bye.